As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back, seeing. This morning we'll see that a man was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him, so that the works of God will be displayed in us. That should be our hope, that as we look at this difficult text, which is not difficult to understand, we would realize and better comprehend how it is possible that God would cause a man to suffer so greatly for his own purposes. The common buzz term is, it's not about you. And this text really drives us to acknowledge whether or not we actually believe that. When we read hard truths, the temptation is to set the truths in God's word that we readily believe against the hard truths that are more difficult to believe. That's the tendency. We look at those things that we can easily say, well, of course that's a truth about God. That's obvious. God is good, therefore good comes out of God's doing. A text like this forces us to examine what we actually believe regarding his word. Do we believe his word or do we use it to defend our own beliefs? Do we approach the word of God with honesty or with the purpose of finding those passages that best defend what's comfortable to us? This text, as I said, is a great challenge, but it's one that ought to be rewarding. It ought not to be something that would create consternation. Certainly, consternation is the initial response when we see that this is God's sovereign design for this man. How could God cause someone to suffer? How could that be God's doing utterly and completely apart from this man's life? It was predetermined before he had the opportunity to bring any difficulty into his own life like you and I have done, probably on more than a few occasions. Jesus is clear. It has nothing to do with this man's sin. In fact, it has nothing to do with his parents' sin. The Jewish belief, the erroneous Jewish belief, was that children would be punished for their parents' sin, specifically for their father's sin. This is a misinterpretation and a misapplication of the passage in the book of Genesis that tells us that the sin's of men visit 
their children on down into the fourth generation. This doesn't mean by any means that those whose grandparents sin in particular ways should bear the responsibility for their sins. This is where the erroneous idea of reparations in our current society has come from. That somehow or another, my grandfather's sins are sins that I'm responsible for, so much so that I must pay for them. This is where the social justice movement has gone so misguided, and unfortunately it's penetrated the church, even good people. They've chosen to acquiesce to their fear of man rather than their fear of God and embraced a racist mindset in the false name of correcting racism. It's really ironic, to say the least. Your role, my role, is to sit under the judgment of the Word of God, under the judgment, the scrutiny of the Word of God. This is where our comfort is. As one person said to me years ago when I had been teaching the doctrines of grace from the book of Romans, I hated it, and now I find it soothing. That's what happens to the person who looks at the hard truths of God's Word. He or she ultimately acknowledges that it was hard because they were young in the Lord. They didn't yet understand the deeper truths of the Scripture. There are some deeper truths that you and I will never understand, not even in heaven. There's no reason for us to think that somehow because we are transferred into the glorious state where there will be no longer any sin, no judgment, no pain, no sorrow, that we somehow will have all the wisdom that God has. Why in the world would we ever think such a thought? The truth of the matter is God will always be God, and you and I will always be limited in our understanding of things. What we will understand in perfection is the glory of God in heaven. It's mitigated now, it's diminished, it's polluted because of the residual sinfulness of our lives called the flesh. When you have a new nature, God has imputed righteousness to you. I didn't say imparted righteousness, imputed. It means he has made a legal declaration and yet you and I still suffer from the reality of our own self-induced unrighteousness. In heaven, we won't know that anymore at all. That will be gone We will be purified, but we will not be all-knowing. And there's no reason for us to think that when we will not be all-knowing in heaven that we somehow could be now. The painful reality is that it attacks our pride when we find ourselves unable to force God under our human restrictions and force him to comply with our own understanding of what is reasonable. Having said that, that hopefully will pave the way for you and I to experience the greater joy that comes from resting in truth that's plainly given to us in His Word, even if we don't comprehend it fully as He does. That's a big part of why we trust Him, because He understands things we don't. Now listen, I'm not punting. I'm not telling you that somehow we can't at all understand these truths. First, what we can understand, those who've been given ears to hear and eyes to see, who've been given a new mind, a heart of flesh replacing the heart of stone, dead men made alive, born again, all those metaphors are used with an intention of helping us understand that there is a drastic and clear line 
between those who can receive the word of God and those who will not. And it won't surprise you that I would refer to you in this moment to 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man simply will not receive what I'm going to tell you today. He can't. He can't. It's impossible for him to believe what I'm going to share with you this morning. It's impossible for him to believe what we just read about the man in John 9. In many cases, it's impossible for him to believe and understand about the paralytic in John 5. But even though the paralytic brought difficulty upon himself, what kind of just God would cause a man to be paralyzed because of his sin? It's critical that you and I recognize that God has made this declaration that there is but one God, and it's certainly not you, and it's certainly not me. Therefore, we trust in him. Oh, and by the way, he created us. Don't forget that. When you can remember that you're not the creator, and, and you might think, oh, come on, I, I don't think I'm the creator, but you act like it when you defy what he has said in his word. You act like it. You, in fact, what you're trying to do is dethrone him. You're trying to redefine him. Many people have so redefined God in their idolatry of their own understanding of what they think he should be that they've made every effort to conform him to their image. And what we ought to be doing is be being conformed to his image. The irrational person will not even attempt to comprehend the harder truths of God in his word. He will simply declare his own wisdom and understanding and angrily reject God's truth. This is how Jesus described it in Matthew 12. He called it wisdom and understanding. And then he declared the person who declares his own wisdom and understanding to be a fool. That's the contrast between the person that thinks he has right understanding when he so quickly and willingly and angrily rejects the word of God and the person who humbly says, these are hard things. I certainly would not have come up with them. No way, no how would I have created the doctrines of grace. I would have made them more so to exalt me. And that's what the man-centered pseudo-theologian attempts to do. I have two points for you, as you can see in your notes there. I want to refer you back, though, for a moment to the so that statement, sort of the thesis statement, uh, that you and I would be willing to acknowledge that the great works that God does as a result of his predestined plan is that you and I would then work as a result. Point number one, I want you to see God's design to display his works in a blind man for his own glory. This is the beauty of God's sovereign design. We often might look at things and say, if God sovereignly designed that, what in the world could its purpose have possibly been? No problem in this text with that. It's God's glory, that God would display his works. But the oft-asked question is, how's that fair? You do remember what you deserve. Is it blindness? No, it's suffering. It's eternal suffering. I'd refer you to Romans 5, verse 12, that speaks of that innate inherited reality that Adam, in his sin, sinned in the same way that you and I would have sinned had we been there, and we are equally culpable. Yes, you inherited a sin nature, 
but at the same time, you are equally culpable as am I. And so as we look to God's word, it would be our hope to understand that God in his sovereign decree has done what he has done for his own glory. Our text tells us as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and this conjures up the idea that Jesus in his determined incarnation, his, in his willingness to subject himself to the limitations of man, while he yet remained God, set his deified prerogatives aside for a time. And as you know, throughout the text of Scripture, you see that he, at least on occasion, recalls those deified prerogatives. He never stops being sovereign. He never stops being in control. He never certainly stops being God. But in his willingness to subject himself to mankind, he made himself like man in every way, yet without sin. And having done so, God, we would say, took on flesh. And in that flesh, not sinful flesh, simply physical flesh, he passed by and he noticed a man. And he noticed that that man was blind. And John tells us, and that's how we know that this man was blind from birth. Jesus tells us, and this is how we know that this man did not cause his own blindness, nor did his parents. His disciples asked him, this is the beautiful narrative that so helpfully takes us into a, a picture that can easily remind us of our normal lives today. We have conversations. We ask questions. We give answers. We talk about things that we hope we can understand to some degree. His disciples were doing what you and I are called to do, to be discipled. And so in this moment, let me just parenthetically throw in what you must hear, and that is that if you are not engaging in some form of discipleship where there is someone that you can ask questions of in your local church, someone you trust, then you are not being faithful to the Word. You're not being faithful to the Lord. Let me just say with much pastoral clarity and love for you, so often in my experience, those who need the most counseling are those who are least willing to be involved in the body of Christ. It's kind of black and white. It's not really difficult to understand. The person who is willing to implement his giftedness and receive the blessings of others' giftedness in a family group are those who are going to grow spiritually. Those who are willing to sit under discipleship are those who are going to grow spiritually. Jesus goes so far as to say that those who are disciples are known by their obedience to the word. Those who are disobedient to the word with regard to discipleship may actually not be disciples. I would say certainly are not disciples if that goes on for an appreciable period of time. That's the evidence. That's the proof. The person who loves to be discipled is the person who is, in fact, a, say it with me, disciple. Kind of simple, isn't it? And yet, there are those who want to complicate that and blame their lack of discipleship on others. Well, it's your fault I'm not being discipled. It's that person's fault. It's my mom's fault. It's usually somebody's mom, right? It's my boss's fault. I've got to work on Sundays. There are ways around that, and that's a chapter in your life. It's just one example of how people often reject the plain commands of God's word. The person who's disobedient to God's word is not a disciple of Jesus Christ, unless, of course, that's a very short period of time, a small season in his life. It's black and white. So this really ought to set the stage for those who are yet unwilling 
to embrace, really sit eagerly under the teaching of the harder truths of God's Word and continue to reject them. I hope that's a dividing line for you. That if what we cover this morning is difficult, really impossible for you to believe, the first thing you ought to be willing to do is ask the question, is it characteristic of my life to eagerly receive the Word of God? Or is my life a display of what it is to hear and reject the Word of God? I'd strongly encourage you to ask eight or ten people, faithful people who are actually submitting themselves the Word of God. That's my entryway into these difficult truths. Now look, we understand this from Genesis 3, 17. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So death began the day sin took place. The Lord God, according to Genesis 2.15, took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. When the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And they died that day, and they died physically that day. You say, no, 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 they died spiritually that day. They died a few hundred years later physically. That death that was completed a few hundred years later happened that day. It just took a few hundred years to be completed. But as God promised, you will die in the day that you eat. They did. Yes, they died spiritually, but they also died physically. When someone dies, sometimes it takes a while. I've sat in the ICU waiting for people to die because the doctors had said, there's no hope. There's no way. And while we prayed and we trusted the Lord and we asked him to restore this person's life, ultimately that person went on. It took a few hours. In Adam and Eve's case, it took a few hundred years. They died that day. Without sin, death would not have taken place. So we understand that God is just and that he acts eternally and sovereignly against man's injustice. It's not real difficult for us to comprehend that cause and effect reality. Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul goes on there to say that they are without excuse. So in their inexcusable conduct, God fulfills what he had promised he would, and that is eternal judgment. You see this in a narrative fashion in a very frightening way in Matthew 25, 44. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those to whom God's alien righteousness has been imputed. Those to whom that righteousness has been freely granted. But those who claim 
the name of the Lord and yet prove that they are not of the Lord will go into eternal punishment. So we understand that clearly, that plainly historically and human reality that man brought consequences upon himself and that those consequences include death and eternal punishment. This is not difficult for us. But is God's only role one of allowance or permission? Is it that he was caught off guard, shocked by just how bad man became on his watch? How could this happen? How could we be culpable in Adam's sin? As I said, you and I would have done what he did. We have done far worse than what he did. This is difficult for us. Romans 5.12, as I mentioned earlier, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. That's difficult for us, but the concept of what is commonly known as theodicy is far more difficult for us. If God created all things and declared all things good, how could it all go so wrong? Is God in control or not? Has he sovereignly ordained all things or not? Is he so powerful and yet not good? On the other hand, is he good and yet not quite so powerful? A very popular and frequently helpful theological website called gotquestions.org, which in this case is not helpful, says this, quote, The primary issue with the problem of evil is defining what evil actually is. Evil is typically seen as a force opposed to good, forming a yin and yang, or two poles of a magnet. Defining evil in this way leads to a logical problem for the theist. Why would God create evil? God created gravity, light, magnetism, and so forth. Why would he also create evil? The most logical answer is simply that God didn't create evil because evil in and of itself does not actually exist except as the absence of goodness. Now, you can see this is going far wrong quickly. Similarly, God created light, but did he also create darkness? No, because darkness in and of itself does not exist. Darkness is not only a term we use to refer to a relative lack of light, it's entirely defined in terms of deprivation, the absence of something else. But this is an amazingly uninformed statement. Listen to God in Isaiah 45, verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. And you have to wonder, on a website where it seems as though they typically do their research, how they missed this. I create the darkness. The passage goes on to say, I make well-being and create evil. I am the Lord who does all these things. Your translation may there say calamity. It means evil. God has declared he created it. Darkness is not simply the absence of God's creation of light. It is an essential part of his design. 
Genesis 1, verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness did not happen. God did not exist in darkness. It did not simply happen on its own. It is an existent reality. It's part of God's design. Again, verse 2, Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So when a theologian attempts to use an illustration or a metaphor to help you understand something, and the metaphor not only breaks down, it's completely and blatantly wrong, he's grasping at straws. He's trying to defend God from a truth that is obviously true of him, that he himself has stated. This again, as I said, the man-centered pseudo-theologian will do everything he possibly can to protect God from what he himself has said about himself. Now, before we go deeper into these depths, let's go momentarily back to John 6. Turn in your Bibles back to John 6, please. Verse 35. You remember Jesus has been wrestling with these satanic alligator-like spiritual leaders called Pharisees for a while. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He uses a metaphor to speak of the reality that he himself is God. Now, I want to challenge you with regard to your belief in the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus has said to those who have rejected his deity that you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And often what happens with this particular doctrine is some folks grow up in an environment, they hear these conclusions, maybe they're taught well, maybe they aren't, but they never really take the time to actually investigate it. I've seen this more times than I can tell you where a person embraced the conclusions of people around them as a result of fear of man. They chose to acquiesce to what they were hearing, but never really bothered to take the time to determine whether or not they believed what they were being told, as good Bereans do. So what do you believe and why regarding the deity of Jesus Christ? Do you acquiesce to that because it sounds good? You think that somehow it must be true just because you've heard it enough times, you kind of think you see it maybe in the Bible? Or is it the bedrock of your faith? There's a massive distinction between those two things. You are not a Christian if you do not rest entirely in the reality of the incarnation of God, that he took on flesh. And so Jesus uses this reality to cut at the root of the deception of the Pharisees who were looking for a false god under the name of the true God. In Scripture, this is commonly referred to as idolatry. That's what they were engaging in. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on that day. See, this reality, along with the concept of being the bread of life, who is God, who came from heaven, is a critical truth. Unless you believe what Jesus has just said here, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. No one comes unto the Son, lest the Father draw him. And over time, the person who blatantly and boldly rejects this reality is proven to be the person who rejects his word and proves himself not to be a disciple. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him. Well, of course they did because they rejected his deity. They rejected his sovereign grace. I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus? Now pay close attention to what happens here. What do they immediately do? They go all human on him. Yeah? They force upon God what they understand to be empirically true. This is what the pseudo-theologian always does. He will restrict God based upon what he knows to be humanly true. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me, draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, this is a watershed spiritual issue. These hard truths must be worked through. You cannot simply say, well, I've heard Todd say it so many times, surely it must be true. You cannot do that. Your soul is at stake. Your eternity is at stake. This is why we teach hermeneutics. This is why we give you a study guide every two weeks that thrusts you into the Word of God to come up with spirit-filled answers from the text of Scripture. Go to verse 51. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See? See it again? He takes a heavenly reality, much like Nicodemus, and he shows that he can only barely scratch the surface of human realities, but he's always focusing on that which is humanly understandable. And again, back to Matthew 11. Jesus said about those with Wisdom and understanding that they are fools. They act like children. They do not realize just how foolish they obviously appear. Step at a time, a chip at a time, day after day after day, a little bit more every single day, they continue to chip away at the truth that they cannot receive while clinging to the basic truths, what we would call the axiomatic truths, the more obvious truths. What do they lean on? They lean on their actions and their willingness to say, I know those things are true. Therefore, I know I believe the word of God. 
That, brothers and sisters, is the line between believers and unbelievers. You might remember that Charles Spurgeon has said that discernment comes down not to knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's what sends people to hell for eternity. So Jesus said to them, verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Two things going on here. One is back to this basic reality that the person who is not engaging with Jesus, he's not communing with Jesus. He doesn't receive his word. He doesn't obey his word. People around him know he doesn't obey his word, but he wants people to think that he actually is of the Lord. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The second thing that's going on here is Jesus is using metaphoric speech so as to draw a line between the blind and those who are not blind. He does this time and time again. Another matter over which he does this is the use of money. Jesus talks more about money than anything else in the New Testament. Far more about money than anything else. Jesus uses that reality. The person who grows in his understanding of the reality that he is to store up his treasure in heaven is the person over the course of his life reveals that he understands this by not storing up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. The closer he gets to heaven, the more he wants to go there with everything he can take there to be useful to him to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's clear. It's clear. And modern evangelicalism is your worst enemy. I'm not talking about every evangelical church or every evangelical effort. Of course I don't mean that. We're part of that movement. But what's going on today in evangelicalism and has been going on for a while is that there is a spin. There's a new definition of what it means to be a Christian. And it's not this. It's not those who abide in him. It's those who do stuff, apparently in his name even though there's no faithfulness to the body of Christ. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? You might be thinking that yourself right now. You should be. It's hard. These are hard truths. Maybe you've worked through this and you say, yeah, it's hard, but by God's grace, I've submitted myself to that. I've humbled myself, and I've been blessed by that. Maybe, on the other hand, this is so new to you that you might say, no, it's just hard, and help me, because I don't want to reject God's word, but it's hard. They even say, who, who can listen to it? It's a moment of seeming frustration. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this because disciples grumble, said to them, do you take offense at this? 
This is a test, right? He knows what's in their hearts. He's exposing to them what's in their hearts. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Deity. See, that was the challenge for the Pharisees. The disciples were sort of coming around on that, but they weren't really resting in it. They so much weren't resting in his deity that they were inclined to reject the metaphor of the bread of life. Lord, how in the world could anybody listen to this? Well, this is beautiful. As I told you uh, last week, this is a framer. He says, it's the spirit who gives life. Remember what he says after that? Some of you are looking at it. Why don't you just say it? Flesh is no help at all. No help at all. So the, po- the person who constantly only ever takes the human realities, which we most often can easily understand, and superimposes them upon Scripture, upon God, pits God's Word against God's Word, what's he doing? He's not helping himself at all. He's operating by the flesh. The unbeliever can only operate by the flesh. Believers still battle the flesh. You and I at times will say things like, this is hard to believe. Help me believe. That should be our mindset. The flesh is no help at all. But fleshly understanding of things, things that say, I must understand it. It must fit my determined worldview, my logic, my rationality. And until it fits that, I reject it. That's the unbeliever. That's the unbeliever. He's the person who is yet in the flesh, and therefore he has no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Now let me restate at this moment, this hard truth that we're looking at this morning should give you comfort. That's what should happen. You should say, I can rest in this God who has said things about himself, who has said he creates the darkness, who has said he creates evil, that I can rest in him because he is in control and I'm not, even if I at first don't like it. And when you fight that, you're no help at all to yourself or anybody. I know this is hard. I'm not just saying this to you out of compassion for you. I know it's hard for me. It's the complex reality of the incommunicable attributes of our God. That, as A.W. Tozer has said, he is other than we are. And he does not submit to your fleshly expectations of him. He does not let you redefine him. He does not succumb to your idolatry nor mine. He defines himself. He defines himself, and it's good. It's good. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now listen to that again. Listen to that again. There are some of you who do not believe, and you understand he's talking to those who don't know him, right? 
An unbeliever is a person who's not in Christ. He doesn't know Christ. He's not a Christian. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Don't wash over the interconnectivity between those two realities. The fact that no one comes unto Jesus unless the Father grants him to him is intrinsic to the reality that there are believers and there are unbelievers. It's a foundational truth. It's not a secondary or tertiary matter. It is a truth that Jesus declares to be the difference between believers and unbelievers. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. See, this is what happens when the harder truths are declared. So many people in buildings that meet around us Sunday after Sunday, and especially those that meet Saturday after Saturday, couldn't stomach this. They would reject it. They'd get up and walk out. Now, what have I done other than simply, for the most part, read you Scripture? I mean, I'm explaining some things, but a good 80% of what I said to you this morning is just a direct recitation of God's Word. I'm frightened by this, to be honest with you. Should be. I better be. It's the man who trembles at God's word to whom God looks, Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. I don't think I have this so well documented in my mind that anybody who has any sense at all ought to just believe me when I explain it. I don't think that. But I do know that this is what separates over time believers from unbelievers. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What was it that caused the false disciple to leave? It was the sovereignty of God and salvation. That only those who come unto the Son are those that the Father has granted to him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Again, it's a test. Simon Peter answered him. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, I would never boast about our church, ever. I never have and I won't. As I told you a few weeks ago, the most exciting and important thing about our church is Jesus. The rest of us are flawed, and we hope to follow him with faithfulness in such a way that people would be drawn to him as a result of knowing us. But I will tell you that this does separate our church from a lot of churches. To whom shall we go? More of you than I could count have said to me, where else am I going to go? You've been plenty of other places where these truths are smeared over. They're not addressed. Peter goes on, you have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It speaks of his ontology as the Son of God, who is God. 
Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. And this makes the man-centered pseudo-theologian happy at first. Because he thinks, oh, look, some of the people that Jesus chose don't go to heaven. Stay with me. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus already knew what he would do because it was foreordained. It was predestined. It was planned by God. In a nutshell, Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked, for the day of trouble. At least one of at least two things is going on in your mind, very likely right now. Either this is shocking to you, and you think, I can't believe this. I had a guy on an airplane uh, say to me years ago, many years ago, the God you describe is not a God I could serve. And I didn't even know this back then. I was simply speaking of God's righteous judgment upon unrepentant sinners. God couldn't possibly cause pain for anyone, he said. But this is a test for you and me. You've got to be willing to leave here and ask questions. Dig deeply into this. How can this be? This is hard. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Now listen to this from John 17, and we'll get there in a few months, I think. John 17, 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. This is where Jesus explains that he only prays for the elect. He does not pray for the world. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So no, nobody slipped away. None of the elect slipped out. It was the fulfillment of the word of God. His predetermined plan that Judas would betray Jesus. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The son of destruction, the son of perdition, the one designed to do evil. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So again, at the point where someone gets really uncomfortable with a clear display of God's sovereignty, Paul often turns it right back on the reality of man's responsibility, his culpability for the reality that all those who will experience judgment will have brought it on themselves. 
And the person who forces his human understanding and his human experience upon God in his superior and supreme reality says, you just contradicted yourself. Even though we've quite plainly just read exactly what Scripture says. Why does he do that? Because he does not abide in Christ. And Christ does not abide in him. He's the natural man who does not accept the things of the Spirit of the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 11. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. So at the very least, start with the reality that they brought this on themselves, but recognize the reality that they, in their delusion, opposed to God, experience a further spirit of delusion. And guess what? They don't even know it. They pride themselves on the ability to find chapter and verse for things they like, but they're under delusion. 2 Thessalonians makes it crystal clear a number of times. They will experience retribution. They will experience destruction. Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And this just gets back to the reality of a person's personal life. His life is caught up in sin. This is the realistic truth of so many people who live in that delusional state. They think that their hidden life is actually hidden when it's not. And two things about it make it clear. Number one, they have no interest in serving in the body of Christ. That's the reality of their life. The other thing is that which they do hide from some but not from all. The things that actually are going on, the things that they actually are devoted to, the unrighteousness, the deception, the theft, the evil, things where Paul refers to as such were some of us. You know, such were some of you. God snatched you out of that reality. Now you could be thinking, is all affliction and tribulation simply the result of God's sovereign decree or does man play a role? There is no doubt that man, humanly speaking and truthfully speaking, brings much difficulty on himself. Again, John 5, 14. The man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, Jesus comes on this man. John tells us, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So clearly there was a relationship between his sin and the paralysis. What was this man's response? This is so important. This is what we call implicatory reality. The implication of the passage. What was the man's response? Though his parents feared the Jews would kick them out of the synagogue if they spoke, he did not. Because he had been healed of his sin problem, Jesus freed him from his slavery to sin. The man went away and told the Jews that, he, that it was Jesus who had healed him. By doing so, he would have brought great human difficulty into his life. Psalm 32.3, David speaks of the effects of not only his sin, but his willingness to hide his sin and the results of it in his life. 
For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Man definitely brings difficulty on himself. In verse 5, David speaks of God's quick willingness to forgive him in his confession and his forsaking of his sin. Man plays a role. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who conceals them will not find compassion. Man definitely brings consequences upon himself. So yes, man can certainly bring difficulty on himself, humanly speaking, and God blesses his repentance and obedience, but this does not affect God's sovereign decree. It doesn't affect it. Because God's decrees were established in eternity past when there was nothing to influence him. You ever think about that? It's the chronology of decree taking place in eternity past. When did God sovereignly choose the elect? before the foundations of the earth, before there were people. Is it really that difficult to understand? When God determined what he determined, man did not exist to influence him. And so all that he determined will come to pass. Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Lamentations 3.37 who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Lamentations 2.17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Amos 3, 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Not that the Lord decreed it, but that the Lord has done it because he decreed it? How about this? Let's get real personal for a moment. Not personal with you, but with King Saul, 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Saul in the Old Testament and Saul who became Paul in the New Testament experienced something similar. Paul determines that it was a messenger from Satan sent by God in 2 Corinthians 12. God says to him, my grace is sufficient. Paul said, I've asked three times, Lord, three times. I think that's probably three seasons of prayer, three seasons of beseeching the Lord to spare him from a difficulty. And what's the Lord's response? It's grace. It's grace. What a beautiful reality. It's not about you. But man, once you think it is, you're toast. You can't handle this truth. You don't want to, you won't try. 
You won't try. You'll do everything you can to pit God's word against God's word. Let me show you how this worked out for Job, a righteous man. Job did not understand this, and I want you to understand how he came to understand this. Job's conclusion, after having undergone the fiery furnace of a divinely decreed, fierce and painful and temporarily debilitating trial, was this conclusion. You know what he went through. Probably far beyond what you or I have ever experienced. My wife has had shingles for a number of years. And the intense, unrelenting pain, day after day after day. Some of you have been through things like that. She was telling me of a friend that we know from a, an educational organization uh, who is covered in boils this very day. And what's the right response? Oh, Lord, this is not fair. Lord, how could you do this to me? Oh, no. Lord, how could you allow this? I think we've extracted that false idea that the Lord simply allows things. Job's conclusion in Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. What a joy for me to see some of you mouthing that passage along as I'm reading it. You must remember no purpose of God's sovereign decree can or will be thwarted. And not you and not I are in any position to attempt to claim that we fully comprehend this. But we are in a position to say we understand it well enough to believe it and trust in it and rest in it so that we won't engage in the eternally disastrous position that says, I reject it. It doesn't fit my theology. Job goes on, the passage goes on to say, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Who is it that hears the counsel of God and he darkens it with human pseudo-wisdom, human understanding, showing himself to be unwise? Let's read the rest down through verse 6. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Beloved, that's the attitude of the growing believer. Let me tell you about a time in my life when I was saying things that I just didn't understand. Dear Bob Biggers, when he and Patty first started coming to our church, he was so tender and so soft-hearted toward the Word of God. We were working through some difficult things, and he, he said to me in the hallway, this was before we moved into the building, we used to have Ironman in here. You guys remember that? We had that big old table, and that was it, a big table. We'd sit around that table and talk, and it was great times, and Bob took me aside privately, and he said, I've got to go back to a lot of people and confess that I've taught heresy to them. I said, well, hold on there. Wait a minute. I don't know that. I don't know anything about you that would lead me to think that. And the more we talked, I think there were just some misunderstandings about some things. But he so feverishly loved God's word that he grappled with it himself to the point that he was discipling another man from the word of God, personally, privately taking him to the Word, saying, you know, I missed this for several decades, but here it is. This is the attitude of Job. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
Beloved, this was not a rogue, false convert. This was a righteous man who was humble and willing, even despite God having declared him to be a righteous man, to acknowledge there must be some misgivings in his heart. It wasn't as if he was living a pervasively sinful life. He was just wrong about some things. And in his pride, he refused to acknowledge his wrongness. And God struck him, and he struck him hard, and he struck him down, and he brought him to his knees. And Job seemed to be coming around, back around, you remember chapter 38, 39, 40, and God says, shut up and sit down. You haven't even come close. And God comes out of nowhere and beats him again. He's taken everything. He's taken his family. He's taken his riches. He's taken his livestock. He's taken everything that you and I might idolize today and work hard for, despite what we ought to be working for. Finally, Job says, Ugh, let me just put my hand over my mouth. Let me just do whatever it takes to keep me from talking. That's my biggest problem. I talk. Let's just tape it shut for a while. This is what's necessary for the new convert to just sit under sound teaching and read his Bible and let someone put his arm around him and help him think through what it means to be a believer. And friends, if you've bypassed that, you literally must have somebody walking you through what it means to be Jesus Christ. And I meant that how I said it. Who he is in his word. What God has actually said about himself. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts 2, 22. And in the moment when you are thinking, there is no way, no how, that God sovereignly designed anything like what I'm going through right now. This couldn't possibly have God's hand in it. I want you to understand that if you're doing that, you're setting yourself above Jesus Christ as if it was okay for God to do that to his son who didn't sin, but not you who has sinned. Acts 2.22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This was God's definite plan this forces you to understand what foreknowledge actually means. It's from the term gnosis, which is an intimate knowledge. It's not an awareness. Take that out of your mind. It's the same term that Jesus uses in Matthew 7 when he says, I didn't gnosko you. It's that intimate knowledge. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Turn the page to Acts 4. In case you were somehow under the impression that this was something that God simply allowed. Acts 4, verse 26. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his 
anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So if God sovereignly preplanned, foreordained, foreknew the greatest sin ever committed in all history against his son, do you not see how you cripple yourself if you think that what's going on in your life right now is not the certain result of his certain sovereign decree? The one who recognizes God's sovereign hand as the source of his trial is the one who trusts in his sovereign purpose to bring about his own glory and the greater good of the one being afflicted, tested, and refined. He recognizes and strives to be involved in the works of God. See, that's where this passage takes us. The person who can look at this blind man and say, it was God's sovereign design in eternity past before you or your parents or anyone could have influenced God. God decreed that this would happen. And in so doing, it has come to be understood that God did so so that his works would be on display for his glory. The person who subjects himself to that recognizes this and strives to be involved in the works of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, right? We are his works. That's what Jesus is calling the disciples in the first century to be engaged in because the night is coming. We'll talk about that next week. He's calling them to be engaged in God's works. We are his workmanship. God creates works. God does works. He has produced miracles. He makes change in people's lives. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this is the life of a Christian. He does good works. And he does those good works in light of the reality that if God is in fact in them, God is glorified and that person is sanctified. Listen to these words from Alistair Begg in his adaptation of Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Daily Devotional titled, Chosen for Affliction. It's based on Isaiah 48, verse 10. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. He says, comfort yourself, tried believer, with this thought. God says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Does not the word come like a soft shower, assuaging the fury of the flame? Yea, is it not a protective shield against which the heat has no power? Let affliction come. God has chosen me. Poverty, you may stride in at my door, but God is in the house already, and he has chosen me. Sickness, you may intrude, but I have balsam ready. God has chosen me. Whatever befalls me in this veil of tears, I know that he has chosen me. If, believer... You require still greater comfort. Remember that you have the Son of Man with you in the furnace. 
In that silent chamber of yours, there sits by your side one whom you have not seen, but whom you love. And often when you do not know it, he comforts you in your affliction and softens the place of rest. You are in poverty, but in your lovely house, the Lord of life and glory is a frequent visitor. He loves to come into these desolate places that he may visit you. Your friend sticks closely to you. You cannot see him, but you may feel the pressure of his hands. Do you not hear his voice? Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Remember that noble speech of Caesar. Fear not, you carry Caesar and all his fortune. Fear not, Christian, Jesus is with you. In all your difficult trials, his presence is both your comfort and safety. He will never leave one whom he has chosen for his own. Fear not, for I am with you, is his sure word of promise to his chosen ones in the furnace of affliction. Will you not then take hold of Christ and say, through floods and flames, if Jesus lead, I will follow where he goes. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Father, you have blessed us with your word. And so we want so much for your word, not only to be an influence on us, but for it to be the very basis of our every thought. Help us now to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, that he in his obedience to you was the valid, necessary substitute who died for sins, forgiving them, purchasing us, even as your word is said in Acts 20, God shed his blood for the church. Lord, may we remember this when trial comes, and may we help others remember it when we help them through their trials. Amen.